This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology and media in Asia. In this episode, I speak to Harish Pillay, Head of Community and Architecture from Red Hat on the footprint of the open source enterprise software company across Asia and the open source movement in Asia from the different cultural attitudes to how it has evolved from the 1990s till now. Hi Harish. Hi. Hi Bernard. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, thank you. You're based in Singapore, but you travel all over Asia-Pacific, right? Yes, I am based in Singapore. The nature of what I do for Red Hat does bring me around the world, actually. So it's not just Asia-Pacific. Sure. And we are talking to Harish Pillay, Head Community Architecture and Leadership for Red Hat. Well, we are talking about Red Hat, the famous Linux distribution. I think when I was still in university, I used to use the RPM packages to compile the Linux operating system in my computer. So I guess having Harish here is not just about talking about Red Hat because Harish has been one of the crucial figures, I would say figurehead in the open source movement in Asia. So Harish, I want to get to know you better. How do you start out in the technology business? I think we know each other for some time. Yeah, yeah, yes, Bernard. Well, I started in technology only because accidentally dropped into it more than anything else. It's got to do with interests that happen. You know, this goes way, way, way back to you know, primary school days, not knowing what the heck was going on. My fondest memory is one of my primary school teacher in primary two, for that matter. She was showing us in class how she could use a battery and, and a wire and a bulb and you know have the whole thing work. And I had no idea what she did, but whatever it was that she did, it was just fascinating for me. That kind of started off my entire, you know, delving into all of these things uh, from a technology point of view to understand what it is. Fast forward many, many years, when I was in graduate school in Oregon State, you know, I never expected anything as fascinating as what I ended up having to do to be able to be on this thing called the ARPANET. I had no idea what that really meant. That allowed me opportunity to learn about, you know, networking and, you know, how computers work and TCPI, whole long list of things. And eventually that brought me into doing my thesis work in building a TCPIP stack for the then OS2, which never had a TCPIP stack. So I built one and that was my master's thesis. And so the one led to the other and essentially I'm trained as an electrical engineer. That's my background. That's my passion, you know, chip design and so on. But software is the is the complement of the hardware so once you understand how the hardware works it's much easier to articulate what the software can and potentially do rather than the other way around so i then you know drifted into software so it was more of an accidental thing rather than a planned move into the technology business so to speak subsequently you got into the corporate world and you work in the software business. Is that right? Yeah, that, that is, that's about right. Yeah. Yeah. I've been in the software industry since 1982 for that matter. From your various roles in your career, I know you spent a significantly long time with Red Hat. What are the interesting career lessons you have learned as a technologist? Well, you know, the, that's the best part of the technology business because things change so dramatically and it, it gets faster and faster. So the one thing that you need to keep in mind is that whatever you're familiar with today is enough probably for today and tomorrow is a brand new day. Being a brand new day means there will be new ideas, new challenges. So the key message from a technologist is 
to be able to adapt, to be able to learn, to, to be able to figure out rather than saying, oh, this is too hard for me. I am exiting this space. Certainly, there are people who do that. They will exit and that's fine. But as far as I'm concerned, uh, I have to be honest to myself. I enjoy doing this and this is, you know, keeps me active, keeps I think it keeps me young to be able to understand what's going on in how technology can evolve and, and is evolving and can be used and deployed in very clever ways. That's really, for me, the, the, the best part of it, uh, of being in this industry. You started off working with networks. Then subsequently, we have the software world of that was dominated by Microsoft. And then there is the open source movement moving into the web. And now you have web-based services from Google and then now into social networks. And then people talk about Raspberry Pi because I know you've always been playing with the Arduino components. Yeah. So can you talk about how you mitigate each one of these transitions and how do you actually use the lesson that you talk about to actually learn these new things? The, the easiest way to probably answer this would be to say that I'm always open to new ideas. So if you start from the premise that all new ideas are welcome. Let's see how I can actually benefit, learn, use, propose, and deploy. If I start from that premise, then anything is possible. Instead of saying, oh, this is the only way to do it, and therefore you exclude everything else, then becomes a challenge. One of the lessons I learned you know, when I was in school, one of my professors, uh, he said, you know, if you want to be in the technology business, I mean, he was an electrical engineer, and uh, he was saying, if you want to be in a technology business, for the rest of your life, you jolly well keep up to date. If you don't want to keep up to date, you should just consider exiting and doing something else. So that advice has stuck with me all these years. So if I want to continue in this space, I have to keep adapting, keep learning, keep making mistakes, learning from the mistakes, and trying to figure out other ways to do the same thing, maybe a little bit cleverer, more efficient. I don't know what it is, but Every day brings in a new set of interesting you know, opportunities that I've never thought of before. And it's only because it's possible today because you keep open-minded as to how you want to get to it. If I say, no, that's the only way to do then, you know, I'm sorry, you, you lost the battle. So how do you eventually come to embrace the open source philosophy that is now part of your career then? Well, you know, that never started that, you know, in that way. It was, it was again, it goes back to school. Even when I was in grad school, and this was the days of ARPANET. I was trying to finish up my thesis work and I was getting stuck. I couldn't figure out how some of the things were trying to work because it is uh, the late 1980s. So news groups were the way that you communicate with people. That, that was the social network of those days. So I remember posting questions on a couple of news groups, pc or something, asking advice on how to do certain things and so on. And people were giving answers and suggestions and, you know, code snippets and what have you. And I was just completely blown away. I have no idea who these people are. And why are they giving me these things? All I did was to ask a question and, you know, sometimes I get good quality questions and answers with, you know, with code to say, try this. It's like, wow. So that really, you know, got me thinking. So there is something happening when you can collaborate essentially with, with strangers on the internet. And that kind of set motion in my mind, they say, you know, there is this thing that is going on, how this will transform into open source. This was the days when it was still called free software. Uh, I had no idea. So it was just one led to the other and you know eventually I was completely sold on this idea because if I if it's not for open source software or free software for that matter, I would not have graduated. And this is nineteen eighty nine. That's a long time ago. 
it's almost like the usenet which i also patronize most of these news groups where i learned most of my open source software programming as well it's today's stack overflow and possibly github as well right so yeah exactly, exactly which comes to the most interesting topic of the day because i wanted to understand the company red hat in asia so maybe mm-hmm. harish can you give an introduction to the company red hat and how it has evolved into a major open source enterprise player in the asia pacific market or even globally sure so red hat was established in north carolina in 1993-1994 so it's about 23 year old organization it got listed on nasdaq then in 1999 and subsequently now has moved on to to be on New York Stock Exchange. So Red Hat started off with a premise with the understanding that you know there are these software that is available again we're talking about a 1990 frame of reference that you know are sort of good enough and you know people can potentially do stuff with it. And so therefore the idea was you know if we can pull in all the relevant tools and relevant libraries and relevant applications together and put it onto a diskette and potentially then you know make it available for anybody to either buy the diskettes from Red Hat then or download it uh, via FTP you can you know start using it on your computer and so it was trying to make sense of bringing some form of uh, sanity to being able to consume this thing called open source software or free software so over the years that's been the premise and that's been the ethos it's trying that Red Hat today has got a the mission statement which you know was essentially written ground up from uh, Red Hatters uh, around the world which basically says the to be a catalyst Red Hat wants to be the catalyst in communities of contributors collaborators and partners to build better technology the open source way so the idea here is that we can be a force for making good quality code that can be deployed in any manner that you choose for whatever purpose it is but using the open source ways of collaboration of sharing code best idea wins code wins in this case not so much you know my viewpoint as opposed to somebody else's viewpoint the code will speak at the end of the day because that's what everything is built upon so red hat's philosophy is that now along the way what we have found is that as more and more technologies become relatively commoditized when i say commoditized in this particular instance we're talking specifically about hardware when the intel hardware became sufficiently powerful and widespread enough that you know they needed an operating system to run to serve this thing called the world wide web the linux operating system became the default and de facto operating system of choice and then came the lamb stack so all of these things were all built using open source tools and techniques that eventually you know from a rehab point of view that became the driver for a lot of innovation that was happening So let me then fast forward to the early 2000s up until the 2001 2002 time frame for Red Hat really we couldn't figure out how to make money how to make money out of this free and open source software yes Red Hat was listed on uh, Nasdaq at that time but couldn't really figure out how to make money but there were organizations that were deploying the Linux operating system Red Hat Red Hat was providing and they wanted official accountability and support and updates and upgrades and all those things the question end was how much will you be willing to pay for it the negotiations and discussions and you know debates went through between red hatters as well and with our key customers in this case mostly wall street banks and it came to a point where it made sense that we can charge a subscription 
For the subscription, you get a whole long list of things, including support. And we keep, we still keep the source code 100% open because it's GPL based and let the innovation happen. And so that's really how we became commercial operation to be able to generate the profits that we have, or rather revenues that we have been able to generate over the last 14 years as a enterprise technology service provider. At the close of last financial year, we've reported to just in excess of $2 billion US dollars in terms of revenue globally, selling essentially free and open source software. It's probably the most successful business model that actually utilizes open source software. I guess the Linux ecosystem, which is Red Hat is part of, I mean, there are other Linux distributions, for example, Debian, Ubuntu, and SUSE, and a lot of yeah. Slackware as, as well. I mean, it has gone a very, very long way in terms of that as well, started by Linus Tovos. One thing I wanted to ask is, what's your current role and coverage in Red Hat over the past 12 years? Well, the I've, I've done many things within Red Hat the last uh, 12 years or 12, 13 years I've been with the organization. Currently, I've been, you know, I'm focusing more on the open source community engagements from Red Hat with the open source community around the world to make sure that we, Red Hat, believes in okay just for the record we are a 100% open source company so everything that we do every code that we ship is 100% open source we don't have something that is a secret undisclosed bit of code for you know extra dollars from for the, from the customer no every single bit is 100% open but what what i try to do is to ensure that red hat behaves well and is a very very good participant within the open source community we work peer to peer with the open source community we are not going to the open source community and saying, hey guys, we want you to do X and to, to another group, we want, you, we want you to do Y. That's not how we do stuff. We work with the community, whatever the community thinks makes sense, that's what it is. And we will go with it. If it impacts our business negatively, that's for us to figure out how to address. But at the end of the day, the project has to be successful. So that's so. What I do, and you know, I've been doing for the last few years, is focusing on getting that aspect throughout all of Red Hat, from us engaging with the global open source community. So, what are the major products in Red Hat that actually focuses on enterprises within Asia Pacific? I guess you, that's also part of your coverage as well, right? Yeah. Well, you know, every single product that we ship is for the enterprise. So we have gone past the operating system level. We are no longer only looking at Red Hat Enterprise Linux at the OS level. We go at the middleware level, uh, what is known as JBoss, which has a whole slew of different capabilities and functionalities that allow you to build middleware solutions. And in today's context with the cloud and everything else that you want to talk about, we bought a company called Makara about, I think, five, four or five years ago, which essentially has been rebranded and rebuilt from scratch called OpenShift. OpenShift gives you a platform as a service or what we like to now call a container as a service offering so that customers can build and focus on just making their application work and let the open shift in this case take care of all the plumbing that goes between the application and, and the internet so you know your domain names your security your ip numbers your memory allocation your storage your backups scaling out as the traffic increases and so on and so forth so all of these Every single bit here is built using open source technology. So from our point of view, we want to make the best out there to be as successful as you can so that you, Mr. Customer, focus on your enterprise solution that runs on in what you call a cloud. Whether the cloud is internal to your organization, that means you have your own private cloud, on your local data center or somewhere in a hybrid environment or in a public cloud. 
it is the same exact platform as a service or container as a service with OpenShift. So you can move your workloads as you need so that you can be as skilled and as productive as you can with the solutions that you're trying to build. So that's where a lot of, you know, the last few years, my focus has been trying to get that message out to as many enterprises as possible, because that's where, you know, a lot of innovation is also happening. And I guess the middle layer is very important to even today for mobile devices and the Internet of Things. So are there any products within Red Hat that actually focuses on those areas? The Internet of Things, it's a tricky space to be in. We have a project called RHIoT, which is, again, an open source project. Red Hat IoT, or Riot in this case. The idea here being that, you know, we want to be able to get enough of the technologies out there, let the community of you know, hackers, you know, have fun with it, break it, improve it, add more components, remove components, do whatever necessary. At some point in the future, it, will, it may have to become productized and supportable from a customer and customer perspective. But uh, from an IoT point of view, those things are a little bit early in today's context. So not quite there yet because you still need to get devices that need to be in that kind of a space. So that's an early days from our point of view. Does Raya actually support the Arduino or the Raspberry Pi? You know, we don't necessarily say it supports or doesn't support it. The code is there. You can certainly make it run on an Arduino, Raspberry Pi, the Pi, Pi Zero, Pi Threes, you know, you name it, and and in a whole series of other boards as well. So. What we try to do is to make sure that the, the code base is there that supports as wide as possible a range. But more importantly, we also try to ensure that we don't, we are not necessarily wanting to focus on technologies that are harder for it to scale out. And when I say that is because when you look at the Raspberry Pi space, there is, uh, you know, the older ARM CPUs are not something that, it's not necessarily going to be production capable from that point of view, even for an IoT space. So we want to move into better, uh, the newer versions, the ARM uh, version 7s, I think it is, and also 64-bit ARM CPU so that we can actually make them very useful, even in an IoT environment. So how has the adoption of open source technologies by enterprises changed within Asia itself? I think the change has taken a long time. I'm sure you're very, very well aware of it. The bottom line here, and I do have this conversation with you know, my own colleagues and with our customers as well. Customers in general don't care about whether the source code is open or not open. They, in general, they don't care. What do they care about? They care about you Mr. Service Provider or Technology Provider solving my business issue and after it has been solved, it has been looked at and you look after it and manage it, maintain it and, you know, and, and so on. That's what they care about. Not so much the source code. But they do get that understanding nowadays that it makes a lot of sense if the code itself was open. Because at the end of the day, they have felt the pain when they went through the same process, which is, I want to, you know, have a solution and Mr. You know, vendor, whoever you are, thank you very much for this, the price and I, I, I buy it and then I'm done. And sometime later you come back and say, oh, I'm sorry, I have to raise the price for this or for that. And I, you have to go back to the same vendor. Otherwise, you've got no more support and you don't have accountability and all that. They have learned that lesson very, very hard uh, over the last few years. and. They recognize that open source is the way out of that kind of a lock-in, a vendor lock-in. And so because of that realization, more and more vendor customers are turning to Red Hat and say, how is it that you can do what we do? And how is it that they can therefore benefit from the fact that the code is open? 
So it's actually very interesting days today. It took a long time to get here. They had to be burnt a few times, but we are here today. And I think August well, uh, because a lot of a lot more organizations than I ever thought are now coming to us and saying, we need help. We need to make this happen because we don't get stuck. Do you believe that mobile was the driver for this? Because it was actually the Android, which is actually an open operating system for mobile that actually uses Linux and that eventually lead to today's world. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I think credit has to be spread around many, many places. But I think the bigger issue is one of organizations recognizing that they cannot continue going down the path where they are locked into a particular vendor. Uh, you know, and the vendor either say, sorry, you know, this, this particular version has reached end of life and you have to pay me X dollars more before the next version is and so on and so forth. That, I think people are quite tired. They have been there. They have been stuck. They just don't want to deal with that anymore. And so recognizing that, I think, is really what is also happening. And there's a lot more opportunities, especially when you deal with the cloud. So there's a combination of a mobile space, I agree. But it's also the notion of getting stuff done in the cloud without having to install things for yourself, per se. Changes how you approach enterprise solution. I find it very interesting or ironic recently when I was on Facebook and I saw a very interesting ad called Microsoft Azure supports Red Hat. So it does came a long way for us. So I wanted to ask, so what are the interesting case studies for Red Hat in Asia? Can you give two or three examples? Okay, well, some case studies. If we look at OpenStack as an example of a case study, we have a customer, in this case, is uh, Nanyang Technological University, NTU. You know, I don't have all the details in front of me, but NTU was one of the earliest adopters at, along with uh, Yale and US in terms of an educational rollout of using OpenStack, which is a lesson in itself because OpenStack is a fast-moving project. And what Red Hat brings to any project, any open source project, is some some degree of sanity, sanity from a customer's perspective. So they wanted to jump into the OpenStack bandwagon, just like anybody else wants to do. But the challenge is if you don't have enough people on board to be able to do all the tweaks and bells and whistles and functionality in a way that it's going to benefit you, you're going to spend a lot of time kind of learning the ropes and trying to figure it out, which in, in and of itself is fine, but you may not be having that enough time to make that successful. So that's where Red Hat comes in to help them make the right transition, right move, so that what we do is we take OpenStack a project and then we turn it into a distribution solution that we can now sell to our customers on the basis of a subscription. The code base is the same. It's just that now we do all the bundling together, testing, making sure all the different components fit and run well, and you can then straight away go ahead and deploy. So that's an example of how we help a couple of organizations, in this case, happen to be academic institutions in Singapore for that matter, to make that happen. How about businesses then? Businesses, again, you know, I can give an example of a large telco in Thailand who had, you know, grown through acquisitions of many smaller organizations. And in the end, what they ended up having was every bit of technology from every bit of every technology company on the planet. So much so that, you know, when I spoke to the CIO, his biggest pain was that he's got no money left over from a budgetary perspective to do anything new because all of his money pretty much is about 85% goes to just keeping the lights on with all the inefficiencies when you have multiple silos of all kinds of databases and you know, servers and so on. So when we went in there to propose a way to look at the entire system that he has 
and find a way with technologies which are open source based technologies from Red Hat so with our, our consultants coming on board to help them articulate and actually architect out an entire solution that allows them to move away from all these individual silos that they had. So it took some time for it to happen, but it did subsequently happen. And you know they are now far more productive in terms of what they're trying to do with the technology point of view. So I don't think I can mention the name of the company right now, but they are a very large telco. So I thought it was you know, a very endearing story because one of the things I had to do was we do, I like to do whiteboarding. So I had an opportunity to whiteboard with the CIO and in his office, and it was in the whiteboarding process that he was able to tell me his real pain points, which would never have come through if I had used that opportunity and show slides. By whiteboarding, we were in a conversation and I thought that was very, very powerful. I wanted to come to this part of the conversation, which is about open source movement in Asia. I mean, there is the free open source software conference, the FOSS Asia. And I know that you have been as very well known in the open source circuit and almost every FOSS conference in Asia, you are probably there. So I wanted to get a sense of it. How did the open source movement started in Asia? Oh, that's a bit hard for me to say how it started. I can only talk about what I did in Singapore. We started in, in 1993. Oh, actually, it, was, it goes back to 1991. That's about 25 years ago. We started downloading. I mean, I managed to be, I had returned to Singapore and I was connected to the, what is called the UUCP network because there was no internet access in Singapore at that point in time. So in the UUCP network, we were running, you know, Windows machines, DOS machines and all kinds of stuff. And I was one of the few people that had a, a kind of a Unix-like environment running and gave me an opportunity to do UCP connections within Singapore and around the region. Then one led to the other, the Linux kernel was announced and on, on one of the news groups. And then we therefore decided to set up a Linux user group in Singapore in 1993. So that's uh, 23 years ago. We probably were the very first Linux user group. There may be one other, it may be in, in, either in Japan or in, in Australia, but we're the very first one in Southeast Asia at least. You know, it was more of a user group coming together, you know, just in today's context, we a meetup, <laughs> which is kind of funny. So it was a meetup. We met in places like we had meetings in, uh, in Funan Center and a few other places. And, you know, we started up a network of our own. Uh, we did the UCP connection, dial-up modems and so on before we finally managed to connect to the internet and so on and so forth. So the growth of the open source community in Singapore was uh, probably that it would trace all the way back to the Linux user group. And there will be uh, people before that in the running the bulletin board systems and so on from the 1980s and so on. But And a lot of them also moved into the uh, Linux space and open source space. Uh, so that's probably where I would say the starting point would be. How actually you actually interact with the other open source software groups across the other communities? I mean, Harish, you are being very modest because every time I go to Thailand, go to Myanmar, go to other parts of the world, everybody knows Harish Pillay. So... Yeah, <laughs> uh, well, it's 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 being consistent. I think that's really the bottom line, right? I mean, if you're consistently trying to do the right thing, I mean, I, I have always tried to say, look, there are these technologies available, and if I can get these to as many people as possible and train them up, and so that they can now do whatever they want to do with it, I feel that I have done my job in some ways. Just trying to be consistent about it, and uh, I'm not forcing anybody to take a particular type of distribution or. or a particular type of programming language or for that matter, you know, I don't care what it is. The important thing is that you are empowered. And once you're empowered, you become a very, very useful 
person for yourself as well as your community. So I'm, I'm, I look at it from that way. I've always looked at it that way. If it comes back and says, oh, thank you very much, Harish, and pat on the back, I'm happy. That's that's all I require. I don't. I never expect anything. I'm just there to, you know, I enjoy doing this and I, I'm hoping to share my joy with others. And so that's how, you know, I've come through uh, all these years doing this. Does the open source movement in Asia have different cultural characteristics maybe compare, as compared to the other parts of the world? Um, I think there are. I mean, there would necessarily be some simply because of cultural differences. I mean, one of the challenges that we have, and I think this has to go back to the, the fact that we are in 2016 now. You know, we have issues where the way people contribute code is very culturally oriented in some ways in terms of how they engage and interact. So I've had over the years, you know, people from certain countries will will submit the code and expect after the code submission for somebody else to go and debug it. No, that's not how you do stuff. Then there are others who won't submit anything at all until the very last moment because they want it to be perfect. Again, it goes back to their cultural norms that they are very familiar with. They want to keep the fact that, oh, I don't want to lose my face. If I provided code that was not good enough. So for some definition of good enough. But again, the so to articulate to enough people around the around this region, say, look, it is not when when code is com, con, uh, contributed or documentation is updated and so on, and if there is a commentary or there is a discussion or there is some feedback and so on, it is not about you, the contributor. It is about what you did, so that we can make it better. And getting that information across because of cultural differences is actually still a challenge. A lot of times, sometimes I have I come across conversations and you know arguments, very very simply because of this mismatch in expectation. So I have to be the middleman and try <laughs> trying to mitigate both sides of the of the conversation. They do eventually get it, but the fact that you know even in today, 2016, we still have this. It's not easy. This is not one of those easy things to do. And there'll be people who walk away because they say, no, this is too hard. I don't want to deal with this. I thought with the availability of GitHub now, I mean, people can have version controls. People can fork their version of the source code in different variations. I mean, I've seen even like certain kinds of code that you contribute now you can actually people can actually do use it and remix it for other purposes so do you think that those tools actually change that too well it may be i mean but i at the end of the day if you understand the value of a single code tree rather than a forked versions then if it's something is forked then you have to worry about keeping it sustaining it maintaining it updating it and so on if that's what you want to do by all means go for it but if it doesn't find its way into the main trunk, I think you know we ha- you you have lost some opportunity to convince others to also do the same thing. And so, yeah, I mean, maybe GitHub does help in some ways to enable people to collaborate better, but it still doesn't address some of these cultural issues. And it, it, it's got to do. I, I think that we are getting closer and closer to a useful solution. I think a lot of the universities around this region I've seen actually do have school projects, university projects, final year projects that use some of these techniques and some of these tools. So hopefully, you know, you know, in the five, 10 year time frame, you know, a lot of the students who graduate and start working in, in industry have experienced how it is that you are supposed to collaborate. And when you contribute something, it's not about you, it's about what you have done so that we can now improve it. And that's really what it is all about. 
so I think, you know, it, 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 these are the small little tools that help along the way. Uh, that's my penultimate question that I wanted to ask. Where do you see the open source movement in Asia go in the next five years? There's going to be dramatic change in terms of how this will grow because uh, and grow and go as well because a lot of the countries that are emerging like Vietnam and you know, Cambodia and parts of China and so on, you know, open source is really what is driving a lot of their innovation that is happening. So it will become, it is. it has in many ways become a de facto, but I think more importantly, it is setting a new level of expectation in terms of how you're going to provide solutions to solve the societies and national problems. You know, if something is not open by default, do I want to continue using it? Do I want to continue? So the conversation has moved from the code to the philosophy behind it. And what is the value as a society you're able to gain and in the case of Singapore, as an example, I, because I'm here, Smart Nation as a project, you know, if we don't build that with open source tools, we will at some point in time become beholden to whichever little bit of proprietary software there is. As a, as a nation, I don't think that is something that's acceptable. So the same thing applies for other regions in this part of the world as well. I totally agree with you. I actually live without a Microsoft computer since 1995. Oh, for my listeners, I'm yeah. a Debian fan. <laughs> I run Fedora on my laptop so. <laughs> okay Harish it's always good to talk to you and really getting some understanding about the open source movement across Asia so help my audience how do they find you I'm always reachable at, on Twitter I, I'm, I'm at Harish Pile, one word I'm also on LinkedIn interestingly LinkedIn I have two profiles so either one is fine although now it is a part of a Microsoft acquisition which is kind of sad but that's where I am. And of course, by email, you can always look look me up. Uh, it's You can find me at bleongcw or at bernalong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, and also Google Play Now. And of course, tweet us or give us some feedback on iTunes Store would be great. And once again, Harish, thank you for gi giving me your time to have this conversation. Thanks, Bernard. It has been a pleasure. Thank you again.